Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. I'm talking to Holly Harrington, the general manager of Taiwan Startup Stadium. Holly, how are you doing today? I am very good. How are you, Michael? I'm doing okay. Do I sound okay? You sound like Dr. Katz, actually. Do you know that show? <laughs> I don't know Dr. Katz, but I bet you I have a relative whose name is Dr. Katz. Excellent, excellent animated show. Uh, no, it's a, you got to look it up online, and mm-hmm. Audible does a, a new podcast. You sound just like doc, like I'm talking to Dr. Katz. Fabulous. Where are you? <laughs> where, where are you from? Uh, well, that's a complicated question. It always um, is. I I was born in Virginia in the U.S. and moved to California, then Maryland, and now I am living in Taipei, where I've been for. More than 12 years, so technically I'm from Taiwan now yeah, as a permanent enough. resident. Right. Yeah, um, but where are you really from? Then uh, I would just be able to say I'm American. Yeah, but to be fair, so I, I get this yeah. question a lot too, and right, and my answer is yeah. I, I lived my entire adult life in Japan. Mm-hmm. So I don't look I, Japanese, but there has to be part yeah. of me that is kind of Japanese, right? Right. So within Taiwan, I often get the comment that I am more Taiwanese right. than a lot of local friends because right. I, I know where things are that other people, they had no idea it existed. Or if I'm answering the phone because I, I speak Mandarin um, and I pick up the phone, people start speaking to me so fast because they don't realize who they're not, talking to. Right, that you're not. Um, or, they'll, or they'll speak Taiwanese to me, which is uh, the local dialect that a lot of older people speak thinking that I am, I must understand because I sound too local and I have to explain, no, 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 sorry, I'm, I'm a foreigner. Like you need to switch back to Mandarin because I have no idea what you just said. Um, it, I mean, it's, it's good and bad, I guess. Um, and it, but it starts a lot of conversations. So, so that's one good part of it. Yeah. So for me, like I ended up in Japan because back when I was in university, the Japanese economy was still ascending. Studying Japanese was something very few people was doing and like ending up going to work in Japan was something that I'd wanted to do. Yeah. But well, for me, it was yeah. very different. I um, Originally, I studied political science. Uh, so my my college work was all in American politics and I did campaigning. So I worked on presidential and local campaigns. I did lobbying for the Sierra Club. Um, I interned there on environmental issues. And then I also was part of something called the Maryland Student Legislature, which is uh, kind of like Model UN or kind of a mock society of the state government where we actually wrote legislation and debated it. And we're allowed to use the state Capitol building. So, you know, college students sitting in there acting like we're real people debating these these issues. But by the time I graduated, I had gotten really fed up and sort of disenchanted with politics <laughs> to the point that I didn't want to do it anymore. Um, and so I ended up being an AmeriCorps volunteer. Wow. So I initially I thought about going into the Peace Corps because I had some friends that were going there, but I felt that their experiences were not, they didn't sound like they suited me, but doing volunteer work locally worked really well. Um, and after a year of that, you know, we went to Florida to build houses with Habitat for Humanity, or we went to Tennessee to build hiking trails and national parks. Um, you know, it was really rewarding. And I liked it because compared to politics, you can kind of see the outcome of right. what you just did. You can see that trail you just built. You can see that, you know, this many people raised this amount of money for this cause. Um, but the other the downside of that is volunteer work doesn't really pay the bills. Um, so there was a subsidy 
for AmeriCorps volunteers, but, you know, I was basically living in poverty and I needed to kind of look for a real job, but I still wasn't ready. And someone said, hey, why don't you consider teaching abroad? And that was what I planned to do. And I decided to come to Taiwan for a year. uh, And that was 2005. And I'm still here. Who are you you teaching with? (laughs) Um, originally there was a recruiter called Footprints and I taught for Kojin, uh, cram school franchise here in Taipei. Um, and they offered me placement in Asia, but they actually gave me a choice of countries and Japan was one of those choices as well as Korea and China. And after kind of looking at my options, it seemed based on, you know, the, the cost of living and the politics, you know, as an American, I, I have very strong feelings about um, certain politics and freedoms and all of that. Fair enough. Uh, there's a little bit of instability with North Korea and things at the time. Yep. It seemed like Taiwan was going to be a, a better fit for me. And now I'm really glad because I feel like if I had gone somewhere else, I might not still be in Asia. Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at ATP.show. Um, I think it was Taiwan that really made the difference and kind of drew me in and I know a lot of people that have the exact same story right. you know they came here for for a year and 20 years later they're still here they're six months and yeah yeah they're retiring here now um 20, yeah so 20, 27 years for me so I, I get the 27 point. yeah I'm going on 13 so I I but again the same way it's most of my adult life has been spent in Taiwan um and so as Every time I, I go back to the U.S., I feel kind of further and further from you do though, regular right? American life. Yeah. Don't you feel a little I bit detached? I, uh, right? Yeah, I, I have reverse culture shock every yeah, time I go really back. It's really powerful, actually. Uh, yeah, and I feel kind of used to it when I am coming to Taiwan. Sure. Um, I just came back from a trip in Europe, and it was a different type of culture shock because, you know, in Taiwan, I'm used to standing out, and I'm used to people right. assuming yep. I don't speak Mandarin. Yep. In the, in the U.S., it's the opposite where everybody ignores me. And I realized that, you know, I, I just, I, I, I kind of want to feel like, hey, I run this big program in Taiwan. I have this interesting <laughs> life, but I just look like this average shop on the street. Right. Uh, and then in Europe, it was the opposite. I went with a Taiwanese colleague and everyone spoke to me instead of her, right. but they were speaking Portuguese and Finnish and, you know, um, thinking that I understood. So, there's all these different types of culture shock that I get now when I travel that before I left the U.S., I never really knew what it's like. So isn't it's- it interesting to you to be what I've coined as a phrase of a visual minority? Right? Because you could be, if you could live in Maryland or in Virginia or in California, wherever you are, be ca- a Caucasian female and be part of a very like unknown minority that other people are not aware of. Like you could be, you know, from Estonia, like nobody would know. And there are very few Estonians right. like in Maryland, whatever that is. Right. And yeah. yet nobody would know because of just, just the way you look. It's so strange. Right. right. And yet, and yet there are people that live their entire lives every single day who are just put into a box or a category merely because of some attribute that's seeable, right. some visual attribute. I just find that fascinating. And so I, again, in Taiwan, People look at you and they think, okay, she's not Taiwanese. And that's kind of all they know. Right. But the rest of it's discovery, which is awesome, right? In my job, um, because, you know, I'm 
you know, I'm the boss, but right. if people come in, they will address if they're not familiar with us. So delivery people or whatever, sure. they'll address an intern before they'll talk to me. Right. Um, and You're so, like, hey, hey, how about me? Which I'm is kind of important. And, I mean, it's good and bad. Um, you know, the people trying to get you to sign up for credit cards on the street or handing out real estate flyers, yeah, they, they usually you. don't bother me. Good for you. Yeah. Um, but then the people that want to practice English, the people that, um, you know, just random old dudes, they want to just say, hello. Or, um, so, you know, you can't blend in, but at the same time, there are a few benefits of it. Right. Um, but I, you know, I had a funny thing happen when I was in the U.S. visiting family just a couple months ago. I, I'm from Maryland. You know, crabs are a really big part of sure. Maryland food culture. And I went to the American Legion and we had this um, crab feast. And the local sheriff and a judge came to the event and, uh, you know, a family friend introduced me to them. And the judge said, oh, I think I've met you before. Did I see you like at a church or something recently? And like, I don't even... I don't even live here, right? but I felt very foreign in that moment. But just to them, I, I just look like anybody else. Um, right, right. Whereas in Taiwan, I feel very, very local, but am treated foreign. Right. So it's kind of, yeah, but I know that, you know, this is something that people all around the world have, but it's just hard to express that to friends and family who've never lived outside of the U S right. But it's an amazing, um, it's an amazing segue actually into, yeah. <clears throat> the connectivity that you provide because you're right mm -hmm. if you spend your whole life living in you know north carolina and let's say you know you live between duke and unc these are two of the best universities <laughs> no but they are these are two of the best universities in the united states people come from all over the world to get educated there they're you know top flight top quality expensive highly educated all the you know deeply intellectual and yet if you've even if you've lived your entire life like in a suburb or around there, and you've never been to Europe, much less been to Asia, you don't have this perspective that you have by living in Taiwan for 13 years. You just don't right. have that, right? Yeah. yeah. And in fact, my mom is coming here uh, in February for the first time. First time. <laughs> but I've never had, uh, it's her first time leaving the U.S. Wow. Wow. Um, and she never had a passport yep. before. Um, you know, our family, I come from a very low income background. And so our family is not well traveled. I'm the, the first feeling. person to really ever, I'm the first person to graduate from college. And then also the first person to really go abroad for any length of time. And so I'm interested to see what it's going to be like for my mom coming here, uh, not speaking the language, uh, not being used to city living as well, because right. I've always lived in rural small towns no bigger than like 10,000 people um, and coming to a city of 2.3 million people with all this noise and you know crazy traffic and all these interesting foods that she's never seen before and it's very different from American Chinese food right um, so <laughs> I, I, I but I, you know I'm happy though that she's coming now because there are certain things available that weren't available when I arrived like in the very beginning you know we didn't have smartphones when I moved to Taiwan so if you wanted to, you know, so then we didn't have Google Maps to figure out where we were going. Um, if I wanted but, to translate but, something, I yeah. needed to write I mean, it nobody, down. And then, frankly, when you moved there, yeah. nobody did <laughs> anywhere yeah. in the world. So, <laughs> right. And now um, the other great thing is that when she does come here, you know, I can't spend the whole day with her. I, I actually have to work quite a bit. So um, I can feel comfortable putting her in an Uber. 
And, you know, just, just that alone makes me feel kind of safe. It's it's great that we have technology now that can help people get more exposed, but not feel too frightened by it. Um, Because for her, she's, well, she'd probably kill me for saying this. She just turned, what, 62? Um, So, you know, it's her first time to to travel to a non-English speaking country um, or to any other country, basically, that but I can feel safe and I think she can feel safe because she has an iPhone and she loves that too. Um, that, you know, now this technology is bringing the cultures together. Um, and she's also trying to learn as much as she can, you know, using the internet to do as much research as possible. So I'm really looking forward to sharing that with somebody that's really never faced anything. Cause now right. all the people in my social network are right, at least this. locally in Taiwan. Yeah. Like I meet stuff, people right? that, you know, yeah. they're flying out to this country today and that country tomorrow. Um, you know, I don't meet too many people here in Asia that, that don't have all this travel experience and cultural kind of culture shock experiences. So for seeing my mom experience that is going to be really interesting. And it's neat. Like the way we work, right? It's not even sexy anymore, right? Used to say, you know, going on a business trip to Paris and that was kind of neat. And now it's just like, oh, I got to go to Germany and then London and then I, Bangkok. I know Ugh. exactly. You know, it's like, me. it's not, uh, it doesn't feel fancy anymore. <laughs> I don't know. I don't mind I, the travel, but some people hate it, right? Yeah. I actually, our, we just, um, I just came back from Macau and Bangkok and I'm going to Japan in just a couple of days. And my, our, it was the first time when we went to Macau, um, because our staff was actually all over the place at that time. It was the first time we ever took an intern to travel with us because usually, you know, the full timers get the right. first dibs on being able to go on these overseas trips. Um, but I was telling him about, you know, it sounds really fun in the very beginning. It's very exciting when you first start to go on business travel. But then after a while, it just loses its charm whatsoever. And it's just so I've gotten to the point where if I do travel, I often spend most of my time in the hotel, even if I've got free time. <laughs> I just want to sleep more and, you know, just, yeah, and watch local tv law and order is on in every single country <laughs> on some channel um so i've know. made that a tradition yeah i've watched it in korea i've watched it in thailand i've watched it in all kinds of places that's so um, good. and that's that's how i experience other cultures now <laughs> through law and order not Great. even going outside just because i'm so you know I, I get so much of it through work um but then again people that don't work in the same industry don't travel when they hear it they say, wow, you just came back from Thailand and now you're going to Japan. That's so cool. Like, like yeah, I just, sure. I want to just sit home with my dog and cat and get my house clean. Cause I also, you know, I'm just unpacking one bag and then moving the stuff over to a different bag for the next trip. Um, right. so it, so then my personal life is just in tatters because of this, cause I can't build any sort of routine. Right. <laughs> I'll see you sometime. Yeah. People in my house. <laughs> so tell me, tell me this though. How do you get, from the United States, the AmeriCorps, teaching mm-hmm. into the startup world? Yeah, actually, so there's a few steps that sort of happen in between. Tell me. Um, after working in just a traditional program school, I worked for the Princeton Review in Taiwan. Got it. Helping teach, you know, especially high school kids from Taiwan that wanted to go study in the U.S., so for SAT prep. Um, and a lot of other, you know, different types of tests, mostly helping kids that wanted to go to the U.S. And so I did that right up until I got my permanent residence, um, which was a bit of 
a pain, but I finally got it after being here for seven years. Good for you. And immediately quit my job. Because, um, <laughs> nice. you know, the fact that, you know, everybody that I know that got permanent residence, that's almost always the first thing you do is, you know, quit your job because you're no longer, you right, know, beholden to somebody. It's like, thank you, goodbye. That, yeah. Right. And I, you know, I also knew that that was not what I wanted to do with my life. I, I knew that I was actually, I felt like I was pretty good teacher and I enjoy teaching and I still do a lot of that in my work now, but mm. it wasn't a career. And so I wanted to go do other things. And I met a lot of different people. Um, and a few people, including, uh, my mentor who is, uh, Ping Chu, Zhu Ping. Um, who owns Aveda Taiwan and also a number of other businesses nice. um, and his partner Ming. Um, they also had a, a restaurant uh, called Non-Zero at that time. And I was trying to try out some new things, doing marketing. And, you know, they gave me my first chance doing freelance marketing um, for the restaurant. And so I did that. And, you know, from that, I started getting other people asking me, Hey, can you help me? And it started getting into the startup scene. And ultimately I worked for a number of different startups. Um, one of them being for desire, which is a, a game company, but they also do their games are about gamifying healthy habits. So like they have a one called plant nanny, which is a water reminder, but it's also like little plants that you can grow. Right. And so the more you drink, um, then, you know, the more cool your plants get, um, they have another one called Walker, which is a space adventure, but it uses your steps to power your spaceship. Um, so I did translation for their apps um, and StorySense, which called, uh, which was basically doing um, online. Uh, and I don't even know if I can explain it anymore because they were actually acquired by a Chinese company. Um, but at that time, it was basically, you know, the phone book, but in an app, but any phone number anywhere in the world in seconds. Um, and I worked on marketing and strategy with them. And I did a lot of other side projects as well for like Fun Taiwan under Discovery TLC um, and a few others like that. Wow. And so my mentor, Ping, um, he actually introduced me to a lot of these different people. But in 2014, the like pivotal moment sort of happened, which is when they were having uh, at Nonzero at that restaurant, um, they were having a wine tasting and Ping had said, oh, I need you to meet my friend Anita. And Anita Huang at that time uh, was putting together this proposal to the government to do this startup hub. And Ping said, I really think that you guys can work together. And after talking to Anita for like five minutes, she said, I need you. Um, and so <laughs> I became part of the five core founding team that then put in that proposal to the government and became the first, you know, core staff. Um, and at that time, there were there were five of us, uh, all five female, um, not engineers, uh, mostly from business, marketing, PR, these kind of backgrounds. And I think that's actually what helped us be quite successful because we weren't coming at it from a tech viewpoint, but from a business viewpoint. Um, and so then... Since then, I've just taken on ever-expanding roles, and about a year ago, I became the general manager, uh, and Anita actually went to join um, Sinovation Ventures in China and Got works it. as our um, as our advisor, wow. yeah, um, and so now I'm basically, I've, I've taken on her day-to-day -day roles and also a lot of other different things that we're doing that are new, um, and our team has grown as well, so 
from five people. We've now grown to, if you count our interns, uh, about 15 people. Um, and we've also expanded in the beginning. I was the only foreign person on the team. Right. Uh, and so now we're almost 50% foreign in our full-time team. Um, we have five people that are born overseas in Hong Kong, Malaysia, and the U S. Um, and so our diversity has also expanded, but I think that's been a big part of our success as well. I want to talk a little bit about something you mentioned in passing because I don't like to mention that type of thing in passing, but I noticed you sent me some presentation <laughs> materials that I went through and I noticed that of the 12 people listed on the team page, eight of them were female. Yeah. Is that yep. continuously by design? Is that coincidental or is it just something? <laughs> it's, it's not exactly by design. And there have been periods where we're like, if we have a strong candidate to join us who is male, we also have to like, oh, good, we get another man. On right, exactly. We'll take one of those too. You know, we, we don't want, because, you know, diversity is important. And so if it's all female, that's also a problem. Not it's not, I agreed. you know, you don't want an all male team. You don't want an all female team. Um, the same thing with age. Um, it's probably not as visible from the page, but our, our team it. ranges in age from 21 to 47. Right. Uh, so our newest team member is a former intern who just joined us full time right after she graduated um, and is doing an amazing job. And then we also have people with far more experience in investments and beyond. And so this diversity in terms of experience and age is also a really big part of of what we do. So when we look at people that we want to hire, um, it's not we don't actually consider, you know, male or female, what age or anything like that. It's more um bilingual is actually more important than any of those other things. Um, and also just being able to learn and adapt really quickly because by, if you look at the things that we do, we are still quite a small team for how much we're able to accomplish. And that's because everybody has to do multiple things every day. Why so, does the, the bilingualism matter to you? Um, well, that's because our programs that we hold in Taiwan are almost 100% English uh, we run very few programs in Chinese because we think that it's an English first team. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and our team meetings, you know, almost all of our discussions internally are done in English. Um, if, if you want to be able to go out into the world and do business, you have to be comfortable speaking it and you can't get that just using it when you go abroad. You have to use it every day. And if you, and we don't want our startups to have their first tough English conversation with an investor. Um, and then they screw it up because they were so nervous or they weren't comfortable using English and then they weren't able to get the point across about the value of their startup. So, and that's something we get a lot of feedback from the startups for, um, that they're, they're very thankful that even though it's tough, um, I, I do get a lot of startups have told me personally because I always make them speak English to me, mm -hmm. even though I can speak Mandarin, mm -hmm. um, that I'm, I'm like a strict teacher. You should be. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I don't I don't want to just be seen as a teacher because there were times in the very beginning when people not familiar with our team would come into our office. And that's what they thought I was there for, to be the yeah. English teacher. There's a balance. Um, there's a balance for everything. Right. And yeah. Yeah. It, and at, but these days, after I've been in Taiwan so long, I used to get kind of resentful when people wouldn't speak Chinese to me, right. even though I was trying and I wouldn't, right. you know, I didn't get the chance to even get better because nobody would let me. But these days I see it very differently. I mean, my, my Mandarin is fluent enough that I can communicate just fine. I do government presentations and talks and things in Chinese, but 
I feel that it's partly my responsibility to make people speak English to me um, because they, you know, nobody else is going to do it. And I'm sort of pushing them to be better. Um, I do in the beginning, I did appreciate having people that couldn't speak English, like friends who couldn't speak English because right. it forced me to be better. Yep. Um, so I know that if you don't have that kind of person around you and you're allowed to be lazy, then you're never going to really focus on it because you have so many, as an entrepreneur, you have so many other things to worry about. You know, you're thinking about your product and so on. Um, so having to take, you know, we do workshops and we do a lot of training before we go abroad, doing all of it in English, you know, it's, it's much more natural for them to be able to hear it in English and then use it once we go abroad, no matter what country we're going to. Um, so even if we're going to, you know, Hong Kong, Macau, Thailand, anywhere, um, they're still using mostly English to communicate. And that's, it's always been a big core of, of what we do. It's, it's difficult in some ways because it does mean there are startups who cannot survive in an all English environment. And so they don't get to participate in the programs that we do if we feel that they can't even keep up. Right. Um, but that also creates an incentive. Like, you know, maybe you need to spend more time working on that. Um, I, you know, I think every country needs to do this. And I've seen the countries that do have more comfort, comfort with English tend to be, um, they tend to go global more easily. And Taiwan is within Asia of the countries that, you know, don't have some kind of, um, English speaking background, you know, like in Hong Kong, right. uh, then that Taiwan is actually one of the strongest in terms of English ability. That's my, uh, that's, that's always been my yeah. impression, right? So, and I think the world feels that way about Taiwan, right? The United States for years mm -hmm. has had an interesting relationship with Taiwan. <laughs> I don't want to talk about politics just because there's no benefit, <laughs> yeah. but it's always had an interesting relationship with Taiwan. You know, the premiers of the prime ministers of Taiwan have gone to Harvard and to Princeton or wherever, right? So they were natural yeah. English speaking people. And I think that people's perception is that Taiwan is sort of like the English speaking province of China, um, <laughs> at some level. So for, that's a, that's a good way to put it, I guess. But, but for, <laughs> although, you know, they would argue about the province of China I, part. I understand that. <laughs> Let's not, you got yeah. me. Um, yeah. but, but the other part, you know, the connection with the U.S. in Silicon Valley, most of the major companies that are quite successful have at least one co-founder who's Taiwanese. Sure. I mean, the, the, look, the Taiwanese <laughs> representation in the United States in a whole bunch of verticals is really strong. Yeah. Um, and that helps with what we do actually, because a lot of these older generation, um, tech people, you know, that were, um, so Steve Chen and Jerry Young and a lot of these, um, founders that are now more successful, you know, they've already sort of made their money and they're still doing new things, but they really want to help Taiwan startups now sure. because when they were first starting out and some of them were founders that left Taiwan because there wasn't the opportunity, any opportunity right? for them to do. Yeah. There wasn't any venture capital. Nobody was investing in internet businesses because nobody understood it. Um, and so a lot of these people ended up going abroad or, you know, they studied abroad and then they stayed there, found local co-founders, started their businesses, but then never really came back. And so these people, though, are very passionate about helping startups from Taiwan any way they can. So every time we go somewhere and it's not just the U.S., Silicon Valley, it's any country we go to. There are Taiwanese people there and they are so happy to open their doors and introduce us to people you know, just get us access to, to anything that they can because they're so loyal to Taiwan. Right. I mean, Taiwan yeah. has a diaspora for a lack of a better mm -hmm. term. And that diaspora yeah. is very interested as are all 
diasporas, if that's a word, but they're yeah. always very interested in supporting the people that come from their country to whatever sort of locality that the others have settled in. And that actually right. ends up being really important, right? And I, it's I, so important. <laughs> so let's we, talk, Basically, let's, we, I did want to add that please. when we go abroad um, and we meet people, we actually have to be careful not to invite too many Taiwanese people. Correct, because otherwise you just because, get stuck in that little right, community. Right, right. Because then, you know, the it. whole event is full of a Taiwanese audience and they've already, you know, it's preaching to the choir. Yeah, yeah, so we actually have to work very hard to, to invite <laughs> non-Taiwanese people that right. haven't committed and are just discovering Taiwan for the first time. So it's really fascinating because as an American, I can also, and you probably know this, that like, you know, we don't stick together that way abroad. Um, we try to know, avoid each other, I think, more than yeah, anything. Oh, God, another American, like, why yeah. do I have to talk to you kind of thing? Yeah, it's yeah. not like I'm just going to help you because you're an American. Um, but <laughs> with Taiwan, it's, it's I will help you just because you're Taiwanese. And so that's a really fascinating kind of facet of culture that yeah. as an American, I feel a little bit jealous of, um, but at least I can piggyback on it. Having lived in Taiwan so long that people still are as open to me because I'm, you know, I've spent most of my adult life in Taiwan. So now at least I can say, Oh, I live in Taiwan. Right. Um, and so that that's like the magic word to get people to help. <laughs> so why don't you talk a little bit about exactly what Taiwan startup stadium does? Ah, uh, that's, that's a good question. Because it's uh, different, I think, than most people's impression. I think people would look from the outside and go, it's just, it's an accelerator or it's an investor, or it's a venture cap, like something, but they're probably all wrong, would be my guess. Right. We are none of those things. Right. Um, and That's that creates confusion because we do so many things and yet none of the things people expect. Um, so we were basically as our identity is as a project funded by the government of Taiwan under the National Development Council. And we were launched in 2015 as a three-year project. So okay. we are getting ready to go in our into our third year, um, fully funded by the government. And our entire focus was on helping the startup ecosystem in Taiwan to go global. Uh, three years ago, you know, that wasn't a big buzzword, you know, go global, go, you know, but these days everybody's talking about it. But at that time, it wasn't a really big thing. And so our whole focus was on how can we get startups out into other markets? Because Taiwan only has 23 million people. It's not a big enough place to really support a startup. And also, if they saturate the market here, they also may be building something that does not fit other markets very well. Right. If they spend too much time focusing, features. right. If they, if they spend too much yeah. time, we see this in, in Southeast Asia as well, right? If you spend too much yeah. time, like, focusing only on your domestic market and you sort of hard code everything to just serve that market, you're missing out on the global opportunity, which is much larger, obviously. Right. And, you know, Silicon Valley startups have started learning this lesson. Right. Uh, there, there were some companies in Taiwan early on that were quite successful because, you know, Silicon Valley companies hadn't figured that out yet. So, I mean, the young startups. So here we have KKBox, which predates Spotify as a streaming platform mm -hmm. and is quite successful, also big in Japan. Uh, we have Pinkoi, which is basically the APAC version of Etsy. Um, but they were built after Etsy. But, um, you know, before Etsy ever had any thoughts about going into other markets. So there were a few early wins for Taiwan startups that, we're able to take something that our market didn't have and then expand it in Asia before the VC-backed Silicon Valley companies got a chance to. Right. But now those companies, they're getting smarter and they are looking at Asia faster. 
Um, and so they're, you know, putting that into their global plan. Yep. So we want Taiwan startups to do that too and be thinking about other markets from day one, um, either skipping Taiwan entirely or, you know, keeping that as a very short first step before going into somewhere else. Um, but, you know, because technology is different everywhere and the needs of the market are different everywhere. So we also encourage them to get out and immerse themselves in other countries. Um, so one of the ways that we do that, kind of getting back to what we do, is we take startups to other countries uh, usually about four times a year or more. And we do that. The best way to do that is through conferences. But that's not the main thing we do when we attend these conferences. So. As an example, you know, we've gone to Rise Conference the last three years. Um, so we've been a partner of Rise since the very first Rise Conference in 2015. Wow. Uh, and each time we've brought a bunch of startups there and we have a pavilion. This year we had eight startups go that were selected um, through a pitch contest. To us, it's kind of like an audition um, in Taiwan because so you, they... So you work with Casey Lau on this? Yes, yes. Yeah. Actually, this year, we also, for the first time, we hosted our Taiwan Rocks Demo Day in Hong Kong. Um, we did it for the first time in the U.S. last year. We did one in New York and in San Francisco. Um, we did that again in New York and San Francisco this year, and then Hong Kong for the first time. And Casey was one of our um, guest speakers, because we stuff. always like to get somebody from the local ecosystem yep. to talk about you know, what's going on there. So we can kind of see what are the differences. So in New York, we had somebody from the New York startup scene telling us all about, you know, what's what's happening in New York. Next year, we're going to be participating in Collision in New Orleans, and we're working with um, some partners there. And we've also recently met up with the New Orleans mayor's office and looking to see, you know, can we have them come in and talk about what's it like in the ecosystem there and how does it compare with Taiwan? Um, so when we do these conferences, we don't just show up there as well. We do up to two or three months of training in advance. So this is another thing that a lot of people don't see behind the scenes because we, you know, we go to conferences and everybody knows us because before you one, get there, which is uh, so important, yeah, right? We are very yellow. Our yellow is our um, <laughs> Good stuff. our standard color. Right. Uh, it's very bright and yeah, and nobody dares to wear yellow t-shirts. So because you know all the startups, they're all like blue and green and all black, that. But if you're black, wearing yeah. like bright yellow. Uh, people know that we have arrived because there's just yellow everywhere. Um, and as of last year, we started using our mascot, Todd the Rock Cat. Um, and so we also have, you know, this, this adorable cat and everybody wants to come check it out. Um, and, but a lot of that kind of splash that we tend to make. So people, they, they remember like, Oh, that's the Taiwan people. Um, it comes from a lot of preparation. So yeah, before- like it, it looks like ad hoc, right? And that's the best part of it. I love doing this, by the way, right? You spend three months preparing so that you look like you didn't do any preparation. Yes, yes. And then people like, oh, can you teach us how you did that? And like, you know, oh, it no, we just rocked up here. Yeah. Uh, and we also do the trainings with the startups. So we do media training. You know, we do practice. How, what happens if somebody comes over to you and wants to do a video interview um, you know, also what you get this big stack of business cards at the end of the day, what do you do with it? How do you reply to these people? How do you decide who not to reply to? Um, because they were totally creepy and weird. How do you right. spot those people? Right. Um, how do you follow up when to follow up? Um, how should you be ready for the media? If you know what goes in your media kit? Do we you, also do, do run a co- lot of due diligence training. Oh, Sorry, do, you, do you run cohorts? In other words, is there a program that people are in or are they just 
like continuously associated with you until they graduate to a certain point where they get Series A? Like, how does that work? In other words, if I'm a Taiwan startup, mm -hmm. how do I participate in Taiwan Startup Stadium? How do you choose me? How do I know yeah. you? How do I get involved? Yeah. Well, in the very beginning, we did have our like accelerator boot camps where we did training on applying to overseas accelerators. Mm -hmm. And we had a couple of batches of that. And we had these overseas conferences. And each time, you know, those startups, they would get very close to each other, which right. is exactly what we wanted. Very we wanted important. to build this community. Yep. Um, but then, you know, then the next group, they're, they're not really connected to the last group. And so in um, early 2016, we actually launched our starting lineup program, which is a free membership program. And in order to qualify, they just need to be an early stage startup building technology in Taiwan. So that for us, that means that their R&D is mostly based in Taiwan, mm -hmm. even if their business team is somewhere else. Um, they also need to be able to uh, have at least one co-founder that's based in Taiwan. Uh, they don't have to be Taiwanese. They can actually be, you know, an expat living in Taiwan. They can be part of our program as long as they are, um, if they want to get any sort of financial benefit, like a free trip to a conference, then they definitely need to be working legally on that startup right. as a registered business. Mm -hmm. uh, but we also can help them get the entrepreneur visa in Taiwan if they qualify for our program. Um, so we can provide a letter saying this is a startup that's part of our program. They provide that to the government as proof. And then they can qualify for the entrepreneur visa. So it's very easy to get legal. Um, so once they're in, it's a free program and we provide mentor matching. We have more than 60 mentors from around the world. Uh, and that list is always growing. Whenever they come to Taiwan, they're always happy to do office hours. Uh, we have about 400 investors that we have met over the last couple of years where, you know, we send out uh, three times a year a list of investment opportunities of the startups that we are working with. We have corporate perks. So for example, you know, Google Cloud Platform provides 20,000 US dollars in, in credits or AWS credits, 10,000 US dollars. Then others that are more startup fees. So like SendGrid and Zendesk, HubSpot, um, a lot of different services like that that are happy to give discounts to our startups. Um, the only thing we ask in return is every quarter the startups need to fill out a quarterly update. Right. So you know, uh, so you know what they're doing and you know, you understand their progress. Right. It's important, right? Yeah. Cause we can't help if we don't know what's going on. Right. And if they just sort of fall off the map and we don't know anything, then that actually helps us. It raises the red flags and we will actively call them and say, Hey, what's going on? We haven't gotten your quarterly update for the last two quarters. Like, and then they will say, Oh yeah, we failed or, Something, but you know, it would have been nice if you told us that because maybe we could have helped, helped you. Helped, right? Like that's something. the whole point, right? Is to be able not yeah, just to introduce them yeah. to the rest of the world, but to help them develop into viable, sustainable companies. Right, and and at critical moments too, because we it, it's starting to get better, but you know, often startups aren't clear what they can ask help for. Right. So you know, after something happens, like um, we have one startup that just closed their Series B funding. They raised six million. In Japan, from Sampo Holdings, it's called Health to Sync. And, you know, the founder is one of the biggest hustlers, um, Ed Deng, who is, like, just one of the, if any startup in Taiwan is going to be unicorn, like, this is one of the teams <laughs> that has the best chance. Good stuff. Uh, because, because of the founder, like, you know, as, as CEO is just such a hustler. But um, when they were getting ready to announce this funding, and it's it had been in the works in the, for a while, and said, hey, you know, do you need help with the PR? Like, oh, I didn't even know 
I didn't think of even asking you guys for that. But that's right. something that we're very good at because we have such a strong network that it's very easy for us to just pass on a tip to all the media that we know around the world. But um, some, so, yeah, Sampo is actually a really, I just want to interrupt for a second because Sampo is actually a really interesting, um, choice as an investment partner mm-hmm. only because it's one of the oldest and it's at a conglomeration of a few sort of insurance companies, right? Right. But it's right. been around forever. So the fact yeah. that, like, I think it's a real tell for lack of a better mm-hmm. term that some of these old line companies, right? I mean, you also see yeah. like Itochu Venture Partners and some other of these companies like starting their venture things and some of them have been around for a while, but like Sumpo, how did you, yeah. how did you build <laughs> that relationship? Because that's really fascinating to me. Right. The fact that you can get money out of these older companies that don't seem necessarily very innovative in these traditional industries is, is, I agree. It's quite fascinating. And I think yeah. a lot of it is up to, you know, the CEO really pushing um, focusing on working with insurance companies, um, the product itself is for diabetes management. Good stuff. And it, you know, in Asia, this is another thing which I, I've learned so much from all the startups that we work with, which is great because I, I, I have ADD and like I need to just suck in new information all the time. And so working with these startups, I learn all this cool stuff. So like from health to sink, I didn't know that diabetes is actually a huge problem in Asia. Because coming from the U.S., you know, where they say, you know, all Americans are fat, everybody's got diabetes, um, you know, <laughs> but everybody in Asia is so skinny and healthy. So we should look at Asia for, you know, better diet and all of this. But actually, the rates of diabetes in Asia are rising faster than in the U.S. and other Western countries. And so that's what Health to Sync is really focusing on. And one of the statistics that I learned just this week because of that is there is more than 10 million diabetics in Japan. Uh, which is, you know, getting close to 10% of the population almost. It's a lot. Um, which is, which is insane. And so I think that, and another thing that I had learned through that is that in Japan or in other countries, insurers actually will not insure diabetics in many places. And so by being able to monitor their blood sugar better and have data to prove it using this product, then the insurers can actually you know, take on more customers because they, they can see the risk more easily. They don't have to assume the diabetics aren't taking care of themselves. So I think, and the other thing I will say that, you know, Taiwan has a lot of great things about it, but one of the things I really like about the Japan market is the corporates there seem to be really open to innovation in the last few years. And so even the traditional markets, you know, I've been on a couple of trips to Japan in the last couple of years and the corporates are very, very active wanting to meet with these, you know, young companies and figure out how can they help and, you know, what kind of technologies can help these corporates, these bigger companies survive in right. this new age. There's, there's and definitely, there's so definitely a, a secular, there's definitely a secular change that's taking place at the, yeah. even at the upper levels of traditional Japanese companies that are saying, you know, we're not seeing population growth, but the rest of the world is growing and we have all the best technology and very educated people and a ton of money sitting in, in the postal savings and we should start investing that money globally in things that are going to change the world. And if that is in mm-hmm. Taiwan or in China or in the United States, wherever it is, we should be more proactive about searching out for those opportunities. It's a really important time actually to have, I think, a relationship with Japan. I'd be curious, mm-hmm. like if, what, do you have other investment partners there? that you want to talk about as well? Yeah, actually, from the very beginning of TSS, so as I said, one of our co-founders, Anita Huang, 
in preparing, you know, this proposal to the government in late 2014. Right. Um, one of the things that she did, she used to work in Yahoo and Google. And so she had a little bit more corporate experience. Um, she was able to sign on a lot of partners before we even got off the ground to say that they will be our partners. You know, if as long as we get this bid and we can get up and running, they'll work with us. And she did that a lot through her network and also just cold calling, cold emails to all these people. Um, one of those was Infinity Venture Partners in Japan. Um, so Akio Tanaka is um, one of our mentors and has been a big supporter from the very beginning. Right. And they've actually invested in quite a few Taiwanese companies. And now these days, um, we are, you know, we regularly talking with each other about how can we work better together. Because from the last time I went to Infinity Venture Summit in June of 2017, um, I did hear feedback from the mentors that were there for the pitch competition that they felt it was a pity that, you know, all the people in the room were Japanese. And, you know, there are some interesting ideas coming out of these early stage startups, right. but only Japan is ever going to see them. And how can they kind of get them out into the world? Um, and, you know, Japan is a big enough market to sustain these companies, but if they want to become unicorns, they've got to think even bigger. Right. Um, so with, with Infinity Venture Partners, one of the ways that we've come up with for kind of connecting even better, um, because now Taiwan, as I said, the Go Global thing was not a big thing a few years ago, and now everything in Taiwan is all about going international. Um, so we're kind of like a good model to follow. So next year in 2018, for the very first time, IVP is going to be hosting their Infinity Venture Summit in Taiwan wow. next June. And so, That's you know, it's deal. been held, yeah, I, going outside of Japan. And so, you know, it's, it's actually quite a surprise to all of the investors and the CEOs, you know, all these big corporates that attend this, this summit every year. Um, it's always in a different Japanese city. So, you know, I've been to Kyoto and Osaka or Kobe and, um, right. Kanazawa. Kanazawa. I don't speak Japanese. So forgive yeah. my pronunciation. No, Kanazawa, but, Kanazawa's uh, good. Okay. Um, but to do it in another country, and to do it in a place where it's not a big Japanese-speaking society um, is a really big, I would say it's a big risk, but also it's a huge vote of confidence that, one, Taiwan is a good place to kind of step out into the world. Um, you know, people in Taiwan love Japan anyway, and a lot of our startups here are looking at the Japan market. Right. Um, but, but it's also really good to, as I said, you know, about speaking English to people sort of forcing people to get out of their comfort zone, um, starting with these investors and CEOs from big companies in Japan, bringing them over to see what it's like here. Um, it's going to be really big. And so the other thing is it's happening the same week as Innovex, which is the startup spinoff of Computex. Oh, wow. uh, okay. Innovex that, that's important too then. Third year. Yeah. So Computex two years ago started uh, a separate but it, a separate conference that goes alongside Computex uh, called Innovex, which is aimed at startups. And, you know, these startups come from all over the world to participate. There have been speakers from lots of different countries. Um, for example, this year uh, we brought in Ravi Balani from Alchemist Accelerator to talk about, you know, what accelerators are like in the U.S. Um, so now next year during this Innovex, uh, the same week is going to be IVS. So the first week of June, I can definitely say if you're going to come to Taiwan at any time next week, the first week of June is a really great time to do it because there's all these things going on all at one time. Um, 
so there's going to be, you know, all these Japanese investors coming into town, but then there's going to be a lot of, um, like the French government has been very active. So La French Tech. Yeah, La French Tech. bring startups here. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they're always here for Innovex and overseas corporates as well. And then Computex, the usual crowd that's been coming to that for years. So it's going to be a really fun mix um, for the first time kind of seeing a, a bit of, I, I think Taiwan has not always been seen as like a, a really cool place to go for conferences or exhibitions. Um, like Hong Kong is often a big choice for the Asia region just because it's a really fun city and there's a lot of drinking and all of that, <laughs> a lot of bars to go to after Rise. But I think um, next year in the first week of June, Taipei will have its chance to kind of show you this is actually a really cool city too. Yeah, I mean, look... Yeah. I, I find, so I, I think there's going to be a paradigm change actually. And if you listen to some of the other places where I speak, I think you'll see that I think that there's going to be a big move away from, and I love Rise and Slush and I think they have done mm-hmm. a great job over the past sort of five or so years in sort of expanding the reach of the startup community globally. Um, yeah. But I do think that conferences are going to start to shrink in size because I think more people can get more things done in a room where there are 50 people as opposed to 15,000 people. Right. Just, that's just my opinion. You don't have to agree with me on that. Um, <laughs> no, no, because look, I know plenty of people from Thailand that were at Slush last week in Helsinki or whatever it was mm-hmm. and that went to Rise. And I know Casey, you know, we've interviewed Casey. Mm-hmm. Casey's awesome. And, you know, putting together that stuff is a lot of time, a lot of effort and a big benefit to a lot of people that participate. But at the end of the day, yeah. what I found out from people that attend conferences is that a lot of, like you said, a lot of the things that happen at the conference are prepped for months before it happens. And it's just mm-hmm. a place where sort of people are gathering. And what I'm trying to figure yeah. out, and I'd love to talk to you about this a little bit because you travel all over the place and look at this is how do you distill down out of a sort of 15 to 20,000 person conference, just mm-hmm. the activities that you really want and then build something around that? Well, I guess it, has to be taken from the standpoint of like us in TSS as an ecosystem builder right. versus from the startups themselves um, because their experience and what they get out of it is very different from what we get out of it. Absolutely. Because um, yeah. so like, there's a different MO and a different sort of expected return as well. Right. Yeah. And also, you know, I've been to so many conferences now that I often don't see any of the speakers. Right. You don't care. Uh, because I, yeah. You don't care. I mean, I, That's a fact. You I'm just don't care. It's not just you. Yeah. anymore by by big speakers well, like how many um, times can you listen and, to gary v talk really yeah i well also you know before we um before gary came to rise this year we actually went to visit his office in new york with a bunch of startups last year and like right. sat down in his office with him and so coming to rise for for us is like oh well, so well yeah. I, uh, I got an appointment i guess i can't make it to the talk um i mean not to say that he's not worth listening to it's just that when you're there and your goal is to meet as many people as possible that you have a reasonable chance of partnering with, right. then, you know, listening to a talk versus spending time in the investor lounge, trying to meet as many people as you can. Um, for us as ecosystem builders, that's the part that's really important. Um, for the startups, for them, just getting in front of as many people as possible is a great way to test their ideas and get feedback. Uh, and one of the things we do when we go to conferences is, we have this follow-up form, one to ask about, you know, how they felt about how the trip went, how the, you know, to rate us and, you know, how well did we prepare them. 
But also we asked them to tell us how many business connections did you make? Right. How many of them were valuable enough to follow up? Right. Um, how many investors did you meet? How many investors actually were kind of okay leads and so on? And we continue to make sure that they follow up on those. And we do the same. So we, I, I have to be honest, like we just came back, uh, one colleague and I went to Web Summit in Lisbon. Yep. And while we were there, we actually got a lot done, uh, not mostly about the conference. It's just the fact that all these people are in one city. And so it's easy to just sit down with these people for five minutes that we could not build that relationship online or through email. And so uh, a couple of examples were we joined the Ecosystem Summit, which was great. Uh, it's the first time they had it at Web Summit the day before, bringing together about 140 ecosystem builders from 40 different countries, I believe. Wow. And so and we got to sit down and had panels and then we had little small group discussions on how do you work better with government where you live and how do you deal with the angel investor, angel investor community in your ecosystem? Um, how do you work with corporates in your ecosystem? And hearing what other people were doing and getting feedback on what we do as well. Like, you know, when we were talking about our starting lineup program and people saying like, wow, that's really interesting. Um, you know, it helped us realize like, oh, maybe we're on to something. Um, and as far as I know, they, they hope to bring that to rise next year. And I really hope so because the APAC region needs this more cooperation among the different, um, organizations in different countries. Absolutely. But, you know, the, for, from the startup perspective, the ones that do the best are the ones that have gone to at least one conference before. Like their first time, they, I think they are always like, man, I wish I was better prepared. And then the next time they go and they're kind of like seniors, you know, they're like, ah, oh, I got this. I know exactly what I should do this time. How right. can I improve it? Um, and they help the next startups that are coming that have never gone before. Um, so that's, you know, I, I don't know that conferences themselves are as exciting as people think they are, They're but not, it is but yeah. definitely, yeah, it's yeah. definitely all about the people. And, you know, my experience is we just, you know, speaking of Casey and a lot of the APAC people, while we were in Lisbon, um, you know, we had a Facebook message group among all of us that were coming from Asia sure. saying, okay, we're going here at this time and so on. Um, but it also helped us build strong relationships that we brought back to Asia with us. And so now we've spent all this time together in another country, but now we're going to come back and talk about how can we work better together locally. Um, and so that that's a big benefit for us. For the startups, I don't know. I mean, honestly, for us, from a TSS perspective, that helps them a lot in terms of, you know, some of them, if they're outstanding, they get a lot of media coverage. They do make some good connections. But I will add that when we go abroad to these conferences, uh, a lot of the time the, the conferences is, uh, are more of an excuse right. to go abroad. Yeah. <laughs> Seems it's like the a... part that sounds really cool, but then we spend, you know, more than a week there doing other things right. by visiting companies. Um, so like when we were just in, in Hong Kong, we sat down with CEO of nine gag, Ray Chan, yep. um, and, you know, to get, to get to sit down when you're a startup, you know, with, with a CEO of a company that you know, Right. And it's very famous to you and hear what it was like, you know, uh, one of the favorite slides was like all the co-founders of nine gags having to share a bed, um, in this tiny apartment during a certain period, <laughs> yeah. you know, for our startups that are just starting out, like that's really inspiring. And we try to do a lot of that, 
Um, and then we also do a lot of investor matching. So like when we went to the Bay Area, we had uh, investor speed dating. Um, Google also did at Google Launchpad, they did mentorship for our startups. So they right. brought in Google mentors to sit down the whole afternoon with the startups to help answer their questions. Um, so that for us is kind of, again, it's the behind the scenes stuff that people don't see because it's not the like, you know, it's not being reported on in the media or anything. But those are where the real connections are happening. Um, and it also gives the chance to the startups to be able to set up their own meetings. You know, a lot of them, they're closing deals on investments or they're meeting with potential business partners during those trips. And, you know, if they don't want to join one of our our company visits or something because they have a meeting, we encourage them to go do that meeting. And we do our best to try to help them get those introductions as well. Um, so, the again, the conferences, they are kind of the core piece that gives us a really good reason to go somewhere, to go somewhere and spend yeah. a lot of time there. Yeah. But then the relationships are built more outside the conferences. Yeah, I, I agree. And that's been my experience as well. And that's been the feedback. So for, for, it seems to me like for something like TSS, it's super effective because there are other ecosystem builders there as well that are trying to accomplish the same thing you're trying to do. And frankly, sitting in the middle of all of that is a, is a great idea. Um, yeah. But for the startups, I do think, as you said, that there's, you know, it's just, it's a great excuse to get to a different city, see what the rest of the world is doing. But I think having KPIs, I, I like to, you know, have sort of key performance indicators. How many people did you meet? Did you think those meetings were effective? Will it lead to business right. going forward? Did you learn anything from it? Yeah. Will you continue that relationship? In other words, meeting somebody for a day or meeting them for the rest of your life are two completely different things. So, yep. you know, that's really interesting to me as well from a, from a yeah. conference standpoint. Yeah. Well, we, we kind of set that same standard for ourselves. You do. For yeah, our, you should. our internal team, you know, when we do BD trips, um, last year, or this year, gosh, this, it's been a long year. Um, <laughs> sure here, uh, co another colleague and I went to the U.S. for three weeks. We spent a week in San Francisco, a week in New York, and a week in Texas uh, for South by Southwest. Uh, we wanted to see if South by was going to be a good choice for us, maybe right. to take starts there in the future. Um, and But we also did a lot, and we were able to organize and get a lot of things ready for our trip to the U.S. with startups in May. Uh, and that included meeting with our partner SendGrid to talk about, you know, can they do a workshop and some mentorship for our startups on how to do effective email marketing. It helped us to meet with some investors face to face and get them on board for the investor speed dating that we did. And so even when our team goes abroad, uh, we always do sort of a, a report to the rest of the team when we come back to say, this is what we accomplished. This is what we're going to follow up on um, because we have to have that for ourselves, too. Because we, you know, we don't give that much detail to the to the government and in terms of all the tiny little things, but we are government funded. So we need to be able to demonstrate, you know, we're spending this money to fly to Europe, but we're not taking any startups with us. Um, why is that worth the money? And why is that, you know, you're taking taxpayer money to, to go do this? What's coming out of it? Right. And so, you know, we take very careful notes about everybody that we meet and all the things we learn. Um, because we're still learning too. We're not, you know, we're, we're less than three years old. We are still evolving. We're kind of like a startup ourselves. I was, I was just going to say the same yeah. thing, like in a way. And isn't this the beauty of this is that you're learning and connecting to other mentors and, you know, facilitators globally, but in the process, you're also learning as well. And 
you can now, it's so much better that way. I've learned this actually over this year too, right? So I mentor and advise startups and help them raise money. And one of them actually said to me in the middle of the year, like, you have no idea what it's like to like run out of money and to, you know, be on your last dollar and all this other stuff. And I was like, really? You know, I, I, I lived in a car for three months Yeah. when I was younger. I, like, don't tell me like, and he was like, I didn't know that because everybody, and I talk about this a lot, but everybody has this fallacy, right? That like, you always are, you always were who you are today. Right. Which is not true. But the fact that you get to learn along with them is really powerful because you're kind of in it together. And I think that that's actually something that's in some of your documentation, right? You want to make people feel like you're all in this thing together so that your commentary to them, your comment to them holds gravitas, right? Because right. You're, you're figuring stuff out as you go along as well in a good way, not in a bad way, right? Yeah. And we actually do try to be very open about that with our startups and with the government, with the community, you know, that sometimes the things we do are very experimental. We don't know if it's going to work or not. And so, you know, we are upfront if we're offering an opportunity that we're not sure what the value is going to be. Um, but we're also very willing to try new things. So that's where, you know, in a couple of years ago, we there had never really been much focus on New York. Now we've taken startups to New York twice because uh, before everything is all about Silicon Valley. Right, right, uh, right. And so for us to have a two week trip and fly across the country with like almost 30 people from Taiwan flying all around the world and doing this. Um, <laughs> it's like summer it, camp. It, yeah, in a way. And actually we built, you know, we built a lot of relationships by just going to these places where we, we didn't know anybody yet. But the other part was, and this is another piece of feedback that we get every time we take startups abroad is we, we have a line group that we, we keep up to date. You know, mm -hmm. everybody, mm -hmm. okay, everybody needs to meet at the lobby of the hotel at this time and so on. But it's also how the startups communicate with each other during the conference. Um, so they might take a photo of another startup, like talking to some journalist and then send to everybody else saying, hey, this journalist is from CNN or right. whatever to help everybody else know. Or some creepy guy that's really being annoying. Right. Saying, don't don't like, talk to this person. You know, don't talk to this guy. Um, or, you know, we always we always have a photographer that, that comes with us because we always want to have really good photos. But if there's a really cool thing happening, maybe there's some um, VIP speaker that's talking to one of our startups and the photographer isn't nearby, the startup that's next to them will like come and tell us or like, hey, 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 come get a photo of this. Or, um, and so they're, they're helping each other. And then when it's over, it almost feels like graduation where it's very bittersweet because, right. you know, they're right. like, wow, like, I've spent wouldn't, like, wouldn't senior, wouldn't yeah. senior year be great if we didn't have to take exams? And this, isn't that like that right. feeling like after you take your final yeah. exam and you're like, I aced that exam. Now I can just hang out with my friends in an environment I love with people that are awesome for just a little yeah. bit longer. And that's kind of what it's like. Right. And you, and well, you know this what? Year they did a reunion. Um, yeah. in our May trip to the U.S., we had 12 startups go to the U.S. for two weeks. And within a month after we came back, everybody was like, we need to get together again. And so they had a, a KTV reunion with all of our startups and staff kind of to hang out. And even even until this day, so that's been at least six months ago, but just still this week, that line group is still active, sharing good news about each other or inviting each other to have some kind of um, discussion or anything like that. And that's that makes us feel quite proud because that's the kind of, ecosystem that we hope we can have right because honestly you know we're government funded but personally i feel and this is something we heard echoed at ecosystem summit in lisbon is that 
even when governments do get involved, there still needs to be an exit plan. And at some point, you know, you need to let the ecosystem and the startup founders, the entrepreneurs, as they're getting more successful, sort of, you know, do that pay it forward kind of thing, give back to the community. And eventually you don't need this extra help. Um, I think we're we're still a ways away from that. But the community that we've been building and these startups being willing to help each other has been really great. And even when they fail, um, because failure, I'm sure, you know, is is. It's still not totally accepted, uh, but even when they fail, there are a lot of really supportive people, and a lot of the startups they'll join one of the other startups that it they met through our program. Right. So they they end up getting hired by another team, and so that's that's also something that we're it it doesn't sound great, you know, failing and then having to join another company, no, but that's actually sounds, a positive outcome. It's super, and look, I I think yeah. this is the perfect place to end. But what I do want to do, and I want to have it recorded, is I want to get you back on because I want to talk about the other things that you're building. I don't want to talk about them now, but I do want to follow up and talk about the other things that you're building when you feel that it's the right time to do that because we didn't get a chance today to talk about your trip to your recent trip to Thailand. And there are a lot of sort of interesting things that I think not just happened there, but that will result of that trip. Yeah. Um, and I think yeah, that, we're going global ourselves. Right, so that's, that's the point. That's and the next step. That's yeah. the point. And I don't want to talk about it today, but I do want to take some time soon, not 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 much later, but soon to sort of get you back on and say, okay, now that this is gestated, people understand what TSS is, right? What mm-hmm. the Taiwan Startup Stadium is doing, what their goals are, what they've accomplished up until now. Now, how do you do that thing about going global? So, like all the things that you've learned in telling mm-hmm. your startups. Now go do it yourself. So I just want to reserve yeah. that for the next time. And this whole concept as well of like, I still feel like in Asia that we're in the first generation of this community building, right? So it's more like a community yeah. and less of an ecosystem. I think it's incumbent upon all of us to take this first generation, the first five to seven years and say, you know, let's get a percentage of all these companies to be very successful, very large, very global. And then all of the, the resources that they've then um, received, I didn't say money, right? I said resources. Right. Then they do what you say, which is pay it forward. Because the greatest um, thing for a successful entrepreneur to do is to then mentor and help other entrepreneurs become successful as well. Right. Because exactly. if nothing else, if you do nothing else in life, if you've accomplished nothing else, it's, you know, I don't necessarily like these sort of new terms like paying it forward but if you do nothing else if you just like take the resources that you have and do it and use them for good things yeah then you've like lived a life <laughs> worth living i think well that's what we're starting to do next year as well within taiwan yeah. um you know like you said i again paying it forward or um the way tech stars likes to, to call it give first you know this idea of helping others um one of the things that we are trying to do as a team next year is to give more of our knowledge about how we do what we do to other players in our own ecosystem. Exactly. Uh, Cause they, you know, we, we can do so much, but it would be better if everybody has the same knowledge that we do and we can all kind of scale a lot better. So that's something that we're trying to develop right now for 2018 is how can we teach our peers within our own ecosystem that are running other programs, you know, how to, how to do certain things that we do really well that look easy 
but in the background are not. Right. Um, and so that way, you know, they have a realistic idea of what's involved. And I think that also means, because for us, when other people want to do things that we're already doing, if they're doing it well, then we're very happy to give it up. Actually, right. yeah, you, if you, because if, that means we can we can do something new. Right. Um, so the more people that can do this kind of stuff well, the better for the whole ecosystem, and uh, ultimately in the long term, the better for the whole region, not just for Taiwan. Agreed. Um, that you know we have multiple countries all cooperating, and you know as I said, Japan has really great corporates that are open, but Taiwan doesn't have that right now. Um, in Taiwan, we have great go global education and training, but Japan doesn't have that right now. So if we can kind of scale all of that sharing of knowledge um, across, not just inside our ecosystem, but across different countries, that'll be even better for everybody. Absolutely. Okay. Holly, look, I really want to thank you for taking the time today and have to have been flexible enough, actually, to change the time (laughs) that we actually did this conversation. I really want to thank you. And I can commit to having another conversation with you later, but I just really wanted to say thank you for taking the time today. This was awesome. Yeah, thank you. It's actually one of the, I don't know, it's a good way to end the year, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm glad I could help. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.